I was first exposed to Jonathan Haidt's work about a dozen years ago when I stumbled upon this book called The Happiness Hypothesis. It was my very early introduction to this world of positive psychology and the exploration of human flourishing from a sort of a more scientific meets ancient wisdom lens. My mind was absolutely blown open by that book, and I have paid close attention to his work over the years. Um, in the intervening years, he wrote uh, another book about morality called The Righteous Mind and a more recent book called The Coddling of the American Mind about sort of the state of education from the standpoint of how we learn and how the culture of learning in higher education, especially these days, has become really fraught. And we explore this entire sweep. We explore his early days, um, what led him to move from his PhD to then jump into India to study all sorts of really fascinating things around purity, pollution, and sanctity, how that relates to the way we live our lives, how that relates to spirituality and morality. And we explore happiness. We explore a lot of the touch points of his journey and really kind of zoom the lens out then and look at how all these things fit together, piece together into the exploration of a life well-lived. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. 
If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. You end up going to um, undergrad at Yale. Mm -hmm. You find yourself doing uh, your PhD at UPenn. Mm Mm-hmm. You get out of your grad work, and while a lot of people, the path would be either you go into, you try and get a teaching job, or you go into industry, um, you go to India. Mm-hmm. How does that unfold, and why? So in social psychology, uh, it, it's not terribly common to do a postdoc, but it, it's not uncommon. And I finished my PhD in 1992, and it was on moral judgment uh, across cultures, uh, a study I did in Brazil and the United States across social class as well. And uh, that was testing a debate. It's like a perfect grad student thing to do. Like there's a debate between two major figures in the field. And I developed the experimental design that was going to disambiguate. It was going to you know, be the conclusive test uh, between Richard Schwader, a cultural anthropologist, who said that the moral domain is very broad and it varies across cultures. And Elliot Turiel, a psychologist at UC Berkeley, who had argued that there's a kind of a universal moral domain around um, harm, rights, and justice. Um, so I'd done this study in, in Brazil and the United States, came out beautifully, vindicated uh, Richard Schwader's views about cultural variation. Uh, and I was able to get a postdoc then working with Schwader at the University of Chicago while I was there. Um, in those two years, in that two-year federally funded postdoc, I applied for a grant to go to India uh, to continue doing that research, because Brazil isn't that different from the U.S., I mean, on a world scale, whereas India really is, um, and especially on the topics of purity and pollution, which is what I was beginning to specialize in in my graduate days. It was funded by the American Institute of Indian Studies and administered by Fulbright, and uh, spent three months in Bhubaneswar, uh, in the capital of the state of Orissa, uh, and lived there for three months and did research there and pretended to be an anthropologist. Um, but along the way, really got my mind blown, got it just completely blown. Uh, because in the same way that in a lot of Enlightenment narratives, you may know some great truth, but you know it only superficially. You know it as a proposition, and then you suddenly feel it. So all the stuff I'd been writing about, about cultural variation, deep variation in what's right and wrong, I kind of knew it superficially. But in my in my three months there, I really had a kind of a visceral, or, or had moments in which I really felt that I was beginning to get it viscerally. Yeah. I mean, what's it like for you, coming out of Chicago, stepping off a plane, in India for the first time. I mean, also, you're you're somebody who's grown up outside of New York City, um, and you're also coming out of a really interesting time in our culture, which is sort of like the go-go 80s, where mm-hmm. where everything is fast, everything is about money and and drugs to a certain extent, especially in the New York area. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in the world of academia and like, these esteemed institutions, and you find yourself stepping out of a plane and into this profoundly different culture and world. Mm-hmm. The yeah, the the biggest difference was well. So I was beginning to study the, some sort of big dimensions of difference between cultures and those that are individualistic or put the individual at the center and those that are group focused or put the group at the center. And that's kind of a proposition that I can say to you and you can kind of, you know, understand it. But along with the group stuff comes a lot of hierarchy, gender segregation, religiosity, uh, you know, belief in astrology and in, in um, auspiciousness. So it's a worldview that 
it's not just that it was different than mine. It's that as a kind of a young, science-oriented, you know, secular, atheist Jew, I kind of really disliked. Like, it's all the stuff that, you know, somebody like me would would really dislike. And, you know, especially if you put it in the context of the American culture war. So, you know, you were bringing us back to what was going on in the 80s. But uh, in my mind at the time, it was really more what was brewing in the 90s, which was mm. the, the culture war, the, you know, around the time of Bill Clinton's election, I think it was Pat Buchanan gave a speech uh, 1992, I think it was about the culture war descending on the United States. And he was right. I mean, it re- that really is when it became much more bitter was the 1990s. And the religious right. So I, I'm, I guess I'm just two years older than you. But if you were on the left in the 1980s, the boogeyman, the demon, the terrible thing was the moral majority and the religious right. And you're all supposed to hate them. And, you know, when I go to India, suddenly I'm trying to understand a civilization. I'm trying to keep an open mind and open heart. I'm trying to understand it on their terms. And what do they have? Devoutly religious, very gender segregated. They believe in, you know, um, in all kinds of, you know, uh, quasi-religious or, or religious rules of child rearing. And, and uh, it, so it's, you know, in a way, it's kind of a social pattern that is resembling um, many elements of the Christian right in the United States. A tradition of this is not, I mean, India is gigantic and diverse. I don't want to generalize about the whole country, but this was, um, especially in the old town, it was a, a, a very religious Hindu a priestly town. There was a lot of famous temples in Bhubaneswar. Um, and so things that I would hate in the United States, I was I was at least able to give a chance when I was a visitor in India. And above all, because people were so nice to me and, and I wanted to fit in and I wanted to um, to understand them. So all my defenses were down and, I, and it really it changed my thinking. And it allowed me when I returned to the U.S., it allowed me now for the first time ever to listen to people who were in some sense my opponents politically let's say um and rather than trying to defeat them or say how bad they were actually trying to understand what they're up to yeah i i mean i think that's always one of the most powerful elements of travel to to any country but especially the experience that you had coming back here at that window of time you also mentioned that you you sort of focus on these two areas um uh pollution and uh purity Yes. Tell me more about so, this. Yeah, let me explain that yeah. a bit to to, um, to your audience. Because so there's a lot of research on how morality varies across cultures. And, you know, we can all kind of understand that some places are more hierarchical than others and some are more egalitarian. We can understand that some people have a notion of fairness that in, involves duels or feuds or, or, or re- norms of reciprocity that we can understand even if we disagree with. You know, if a Hatfield kills a McCoy, we don't think that a McCoy has a right to kill a Hatfield, but we at least understand the motivation. But where it gets really kind of weird, much harder to understand, is if you read the, the Hebrew Bible, if you read holy books from other cultures as well, you find a lot of regulation uh, about menstruation, what foods you should eat, skin rashes. Um, so I first read, you know, I was I had a bar mitzvah um, when I was 13, obviously, and I, and I became an atheist. I, by the time I was 14 or 15, I called myself an atheist. And it was only in college at Yale that I read the entire Hebrew Bible. And I was horrified by a, a lot of the stuff in it. There are beautiful elements in it, but, you know, there's a lot of strange, strange stuff to modern ears, and there's commands for violence and even genocide in places. So that really turned me off. But then, as I was studying cultural psychology, what I discovered is that that book 
um, is actually has a lot of stuff that's very similar to stuff in the laws of Manu and Hinduism in the Quran. I was reading a lot of uh, anthropological accounts. Um, and most cultures think that morality includes the foods that you eat and how you deal with corpses and menstruation and sex and all this physical stuff. And so that was really the puzzle for me in graduate school is how do we make sense of this? And it'd be one thing to just say, oh, well, you know, cultures make up weird stuff and they're different. But when cultures make up weird stuff and that weird stuff is really, really similar across cultures, mm. that's really exciting because then it's like, you know, for any listeners who know about Carl Jung and his idea of archetypes, I don't want to get all mystical here because I, but the point is if you have complex constellations of meaning that recur, that, that pop up around the world, you know, like witchcraft, like either there really are witches, which I doubt, or there's something about the human mind that, that invents witchcraft beliefs because of certain recurring patterns of social interaction. And that's what I saw with purity and pollution. That there's something about our, our bodies and our emotions, something related to the emotion of disgust, I believe, um, that structures a lot of our morality. So that's really what I was studying. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the emotion of disgust, right? Because it seems like that is sort of the through, through line through so much of this. And it's kind of fascinating, too, that, you know, you could probably draw a line between certain cultures and say, well, at some point, if you really trace it back, you know, like they, they were interacting in some way, shape, or form. But it sounds like a lot of what you started to, to reveal was that, no, in profoundly disparate cultures in all different parts of the world where there really wasn't any way to trace back a relationship yeah. where they could have shared information, you were seeing the exact same patterns. No, that's right. You know, uh, cultures in sub-Saharan Africa have not had any interaction with cultures in Polynesia or North America in you know at least 50,000 years. So no, there's no there's no shared. It's not shared in that way. It it must emerge from the human mind. And the human mind um you know there is a human nature although it, it, there's variations around the world but there is a human nature. The clearest way I can summarize all that period and pollution stuff is this that there's that the human mind structures social space in a in at least a three-dimensional pattern and so there's a horizontal dimension of closeness we all have a sense of who's close and who's distant okay there's a dimension of hierarchy we all have a sense of who's above and should be shown respect and who's below and owes us respect so if, you know if you know how to speak french or spanish you know that you need to encode that in your verbs you know do you say to or do you say vous and we do it in english too even though we don't have the words we we feel really funny about calling a, a much older person by first name uh, we need to show the respect so we say mr smith as opposed to bob so those two dimensions are easy but here Here's what I found is that there's really like a third dimension, like a Z-axis, um, which is purity and pollution, which is your degree of physical, spiritual um, purity or, or pollution. And it's not as though pollution is like a bad thing necessarily. Everybody has to defecate. And when you defecate, you're polluted. And then you bathe and then you're clean. Uh, and so all the books that talk so much about purity and pollution, it's not like, don't ever be polluted, don't ever defecate, you know, don't have sex, don't, don't give birth, don't die. You know, no, of course, like we're biological creatures. And what appears to be happening is that there's something about our biologicality, which we feel is incompatible with our spirituality. Um, almost every culture has some conception of God or holiness. And so these purity and pollution practices are ways that cultures have devised to regulate our movement on this third dimension. If you're gonna pray, and you should, or you should have contact with God, you just have to prepare your body first. Be sure that you're eating ritually pure foods before you do it. 
be sure that you've bathed in the proper way and then go greet God, but don't greet him while you're, uh, you know, while, in fact, there are lists, you know, you shall not, you should not even think of the word of God while, you know, while you are eating, you know, or having sex or coming from a, a cremation ground. So something about the human mind just seems to need to keep sanctity and biologicality separated. Yeah, and it seems like the way you're describing it, it really is tied to almost a sense of worthiness of spiritual devotion. Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether you widened the lens and said, okay, are there cultures that we can look at where there isn't a strong sense of devotion, of spiritual devotion, and do these same things around purity and pollution exist? Do the same practices and beliefs? Yeah, so there are, I'm, I'm, you know, I try to take a, a dynamic view of culture in which you have to understand you know, the last several hundred years, you have to understand the physical ecology, even the weather and all sorts of things. But they're all in flux decade by decade and generation after generation. And so one one trend that we see as as any society gets wealthy and modern uh, is that this purity and pollution stuff fades out. And also the hierarchy stuff tends to minimize, but the purity and pollution stuff just fades out. And so if you look, I have a section uh, somewhere on my shelf here of books, of um, advice books for young men from the from the Victorian era. Hmm. And they always have a chapter on masturbation and how bad it is and spiritual pollution and all that. Um, and then by the 1930s, that stuff begins to disappear. So as cultures get modern and secular, they embrace more scientific, rational methods. A lot of this stuff disappears. But here's the really cool thing. It doesn't really disappear. It, it still will pop up in odd ways. And so... Um, so you can see this if you look at um, um, any sort of modern ritual. So there's a deep spiritual emptiness that tends to go along with modernity. People have been writing about this since the Industrial Revolution. So uh, Ferdinand Tunis wrote, uh, what's it called? Anyway, he developed these terms Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft about the two different ways of organizing societies. But a lot of the 19th century sociologists noted that as uh, in, in cities, as people are getting richer and more sophisticated, there's a spiritual emptiness, and they and they and they try to fill it with other things. So, if you look at modern rituals, look at Burning Man or or any other kind of ritual that people create, they tend to make it up in ways that are really recognizably ancient. Hmm. You know, like making something sacred, developing norms and taboos, uh, circling around the object, yeah, the use of fire. Um, so anyway, that's the sort of stuff that just really fascinated me early in my career. And it just set me up to later move into politics. Yeah. And you brought up the idea of taboos also, which was sort of spinning in my head, because if you have, it, is that almost the opposite of, of purity and pollution is of these devotional practices where, and, and, and then the context of what's happening in modern society, you know, the last, I guess, 10 to 20 years, we have seen the, the running or fleeing of people from organized religion and mm-hmm. the increase of the, quote, nuns, the non-affiliated people. Right, who call themselves um, spiritual but not religious. Right, exactly. Yeah. How does taboo play into this whole dynamic? So taboo is the Polynesian word. I believe it refers originally to certain things are taboo or tapu to you because if you're in this tribe or this clan, you should not eat this animal. That is taboo to you. Um, so it's ritual prohibitions, um, and they can apply to who you can have sex with, what you can eat. Uh, but the general concept is the idea that if you do something, something really bad will happen. It's not physical. It's not material. It's something hard to describe. Um, but it's also not just 
about you. It's actually something the community will need to enforce, that we can't have you among us if you're violating these taboos. And so in the big religions, this gets developed into notions of blasphemy, heresy. Um, The psychology here is that there are certain kinds of violations that demand a communal response. And you know, if someone robs a grocery store, well, we can punish them, put them in jail, make them pay restitution, and then we release them, they go back down to society. But if somebody killed one of their parents and then ate the body, like there's nothing, I mean, that is, you are a monster. You are so far beyond, you are violating so many taboos, and we could add some other ones, which I won't, but it, it's about who's a monster, who's beyond, uh, who must be cast out, ostracized, uh, you know, drummed out of our of our, of our our community. And so, once you see the operation of purity and pollution, blasphemy laws, sacrilege, now you can understand a lot of what's going on in the age of social media mm. with cancel culture. Uh, the, uh, there's this ancient urge. Somebody has transgressed our most sacred values. They're out. They're dead to us. Nobody should talk. Oh, you talk to him? You're out. You're canceled. So uh, canceling, blasphemy, all these things are contagious. And it's horrifying to me to see these ancient practices coming back. In a, in a major religion that's evolved over millennia, there are at least checks and balances on it. There are procedures. But in the new cancel culture, which kids are inventing you know, as, we, as we move, as we go, there's, I think, a real cruelty to it. There's no forgiveness. There's no, no way to get uncanceled. Um, so I think this is doing... Our ancient, our ancient tribal and religious psychology is hurting a lot of people, and we don't understand it yet. Yeah, I, I... And I, I want to go a lot deeper into that. I mean, there's, there's, um, it feels like when technology sort of steps in, um, at the, at the intersection of people feeling that they're losing a sense of belonging, they're losing a sense of identification with some organized religion, structure, spirituality, where the yeah. systems and the norms have been developed over generations, if not a lot longer. Um, and then you start to cherry pick yeah. the, these things that give you a sense of power, <laughs> agency, yeah. by through dominance to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it's you need the entirety of the structure mm-hmm. for everything to remain healthy. Yes, that's right. So this, so this for me was another real, what's the word? Not watershed or or bright line or something. So I was always on the left. And it was when I began working in India with Richard Schwader and trying to understand religious conservatives, and then I, I came back to America and started to try to understand social conservatives and, and libertarians and all different parts of the political spectrum. One of the most helpful things I read was this amazing book by Thomas Sowell. He's, a, he's an economist, just deep social thinker, uh, Stanford retired now, uh, called A Conflict of Visions. And Sowell lays out how there are these two conceptions of human nature, what he calls the, the unconstrained and the constrained. Okay. And some people believe that human nature is basically good and religion and, and society, they constrain us and they limit us. And if we could just throw off the chains, um, this is basically John Lennon's song. Imagine, imagine that there were no gods, no nations, just all the people living life in peace. Wouldn't that be great? And so if you think that human nature is like that, well, then you need to tear down all this stuff and let people be free, let them be good. Um, but and, and people on the left tend to be attracted to that kind of view that we need to remove these constraints. But conservatives, and here I'm only talking about um, social conservatives like Edmund Burke type conservatives. There are a lot of different kinds. Now, we're not talking about authoritarians. We're not talking about free market conservatives, just the social conservatives who trace their intellectual heritage to Edmund Burke. Um, they believed 
that human nature is complicated. It has good and evil in it. And people are only good to the extent that they get to participate in healthy social structures that limit the bad. So you have to have a good police force, judicial system. You have to have constraints on kids. They've got to learn self-control can't spoil them, you shouldn't spoil them. You, you need to raise them to, to develop virtues, because if you don't, they're going to turn out to be little monsters. And, you know, I had, as I was writing The Righteous Mind, you know, I started it off as someone very much on the left, trying to write a book to help the left understand the right so they could stop losing so much, like in 2000 and 2004 in the U.S. presidential elections. And I started realizing that, oh my God, you actually have to listen to multiple sides of any complicated situation in order to understand it. I learned so much from that book, from Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions. So back to, I'm sorry, back to your question about the, 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 the nuns or the, spirit, no, the you know, spiritual but not religious. Um, if you grow up within a religious tradition that offers these constraints, ideally one that has long had elements of the left and the right pushing, you, you tend to get then something that can end up being both constricting in a good way while also humane. Now, some variants of religion are incredibly repressive, fundamentalist. I'm not saying they're all good. Uh, and some are so progressive, so basically far left, that they end up kind of self-destructing. And from what I hear, the Unitarians these days are might be in one of those spirals. So a balanced religion is a beautiful thing. Uh, and people just left out on their own to find meaning in a, in a world of consumer products and social media is, is so far is looking like a pretty ugly spectacle. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, um, I, I see so much floundering and so much suffering, so much anxiety. Um, it, it's really interesting to see us play with this idea of freedom and free will in the context of the world that we're living in today. And on the one hand, proclaiming we want it all. <laughs> and on the other hand, to a certain extent, suffering because of in, in part of what we're getting, at least that's my perception of it. Like we are wired to yearn for and flourish best when we have a certain amount of constraint, mm -hmm. when, you know, like we kind of know what to do to a certain extent. I think some people move towards orthodoxy in any spiritual tradition because you basically wake up in the morning and it tells you what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and some people move in the exact opposite direction, but it seems like the sweet spot for human flourishing lies somewhere in the middle for a lot of people. Yeah. Okay, let me just pause here and find. Yeah. So what you're talking about here is, is basically what Emil Durkheim said. Right. And this is another of the really formative experiences in my life was I, I took a course in graduate school from a criminologist, Marvin Wolfgang, who assigned us to read Durkheim's masterpiece, Suicide. And I'd never taken a sociology course, but Durkheim wrote... Um, okay, oh, here, I'll just read a couple of quotes and you can decide which ones to keep in the podcast. Our natural insatiability must be held in check by social controls. Society imposes limits on human desires and constitutes a regulative force which must play the same role for moral needs which the organism plays for physical needs. Like, we need a shell. We need a, you know, something to contain, contain us. Uh, I'll find another one. Let me see. So it, Durkheim talks a lot about the way that people benefit from having limits, and people who have no limits tend to have a higher suicide rate. So he writes, Poverty protects against suicide because it is a restraint in itself. Wealth, on the other hand, by the power it bestows, deceives us into believing that we depend on ourselves only. Um, he finds also that people who are married have a lower suicide rate. People who are religious, in times of war, people have a, suicide, a lower suicide rate. So it's from Durkheim 
that I learned that while we yearn for freedom, we actually need some degree of constraint. And, and that is an essential part of a recipe for a happy and flourishing life. And that certainly felt strange to me coming at it from the left, although any social conservative would say, well, duh, of course. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, I mean, part, part of what pops up when you share that also is the notion not just of constraint, but of 
community, um, but of the role of relationship. And like Dirk kind of spoke to this with this concept of uh, collective effervescence. Um, you speak to it in your first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, when you talk about happiness being um, a function of, being, of the between rather than just the within. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more yeah, about that. Yeah, so, so my first book it began, The Happiness Hypothesis began when I was teaching Psych 101 at the University of Virginia. And in teaching Psych 101, I would use quotes from the ancients to illustrate psychological principles. And I thought if I don't get tenure, because it was actually pretty iffy, if I don't get tenure, I'm not going to just transfer to a third-rate school. I'm going to quit the academy, and I'm going to try to just write books. And, you know, maybe let me try to write up these lectures. You know, let me try to collect all this ancient wisdom. Let's see, did the ancients really know a lot about psychology? I mean, they were just horrible at biology and physics. There's like nothing. There's nothing we should read from the ancients about biology and physics. But it turns out they knew a lot about consciousness and about relationships. Um, I, I did get tenure, just barely, but um, I did get tenure at UVA, and I decided to go ahead and write the book. And uh, originally, it was just going to be, the original title of the book was 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Modern Cultures and Ancient, or from Ancient Societies and Modern Science, something like that. And and I got a contract for the book, and I started writing it, and I, I was running out of time, and so I changed the title to 10 Great Truths, Insights <laughs> into Mind and Heart. It's an old Mel Brooks joke for the, those who are older uh, listening to this. Uh, but, and then the publishers changed the title to The Happiness Hypothesis. And at first, I kind of objected because I didn't know what The Happiness Hypothesis was. Like, I didn't have one when I was writing the book. But as I was revising the book, it became clear that there actually are a couple of, of hypotheses about happiness that are widely talked about and that can, can actually form a framework for understanding. So the first hypothesis is we're happy when we get what we want. We strive for things, we get them, we're happy. But we all know that that's not true, or rather, the happiness we get is amazingly fleeting. People have often commented on this. You strive for something for a long time, you achieve it, and you feel great for you know minutes or hours, maybe a day or two. But a week later, you know, it's like it's like it never happened. Often, right. so the second hypothesis is happiness comes from within. Don't look for it from outside. You know, try to get yourself right in your soul. And, you know, meditate, live purely. Uh, so Buddha, um, many of the Eastern religions counsel non-attachment. Do your work uh, um, the same, whether you achieve success or failure, just do your work. Um, and, and that's better. That's a better hypothesis. But by the end of the book, what I realized is that there is a thread running through all the chapters. It wasn't just a bunch of unrelated ideas. Um, and the thread was that we we flourish when we are bound in to certain things when we are connected in a certain way. And so, as Freud said, uh, happiness or mental health, mental health is, he said, Leben und Arbeiten, so love and work. If, if you can love and work well, you're, you're healthy. So the formula I came to at the end of the book is um, flourishing or the greatest happiness comes from between, it comes from getting the right relationships between in three ways. Between yourself and others, you have to be embedded in social relationships, friendships, family. Yourself and your work, you have to have a sense that what you do matters, that that you are doing something useful, and that you gain the respect and prestige therefrom. Um, And yourself and something larger than yourself. Uh, And traditionally, that was religion, the sense of connection to the sacred. Um, But it can be part of any, any noble effort, just a sense that you are part of something larger. We need that. We evolved that way. Many of our happiest memories are, are of such times. And modern life allows us to live 
in a much more independent way. Uh, so the metaphor that kept coming to me is that we evolved kind of like bees. Bees are hive creatures. They didn't evolve as individual organisms. They evolved as hives. So we're hive creatures like bees in some ways, but modern safety and wealth has allowed us to live as individual bees with no hive. Mm. And we don't do well in that yeah. way. We have depression, anxiety. We, we're easily addicted. We take opiates. Uh, so that brings us right back to our earlier discussion of, uh, you know, of, uh, anime and, and uh, senselessness and the lack of meaning in many modern lives. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, you're, so the happiness hypothesis was my first introduction to both your ideas and also this, this bigger world that was emerging around positive psychology and the sort of the exploration of, you know, Seligman's the other half of the cake that needed to be baked, you know, not just sick to baseline, but baseline to flourishing. It seemed like around then, too, this became, there was a canon of happiness books that sort of exploded into the marketplace, Gilbert and all these other people. And it's been, it was interesting to see this exploration of, can we deconstruct happiness? You know, can we understand what it is, what it, what it is not? Is there any universality to it? This seeming common revelation that it is much more the snapshot rather than the movie. And then... Uh, a wave that, that it feels like started to come later was, well, okay, this isn't all it. You know, this matters. We all want it. But there's there's bigger stuff in the context of flourishing. And it seems like we sort of moved into uh, an exploration of what are those, what is the movie? What are the elements of that sustained sense of I'm okay? Um, meaning seems to have entered the lexicon, the conversation in, in a really big way. And also, it seems like the, the evolution of your thought and your research into these ideas of morality, which we, we talked about a bit, you developed this theory of morality, um, five, found, or five foundations, which eventually you distilled and added into these six sort of core elements. Um, where do you see the relationship between um, morality and a life well-lived? Uh, uh, let me th think of an answer to that. But before I answer that, um, I'd love to ask you, what, what have you found? What are the best ideas? What have you, uh, you know, you've been talking to people about this for as long as I have, I think. What's your, how would you convey a formula or not a formula, but the, what are the characteristics of a, of a, of a flourishing life? Yeah. And, and qualifying it by saying, I am very much along the road with everyone else. Um, meaning seems to be a, 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 point that I keep returning to, meaningfulness, a sense of purpose in life, a sense of meaningfulness in life. Completely agree with your sort of um, where you came to at the end of the happiness hypothesis is that us in relation to dot, dot, dot um, uh, is, is really important. You know, John Cacioppo wrote so much in his research around loneliness and what happens when we don't have that sense of belonging. Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, it's sort of three things. It's, it's connection, it's it's a meaningful, purposeful contribution. What I think is interesting too, and the world of positive psych hasn't addressed it in a really powerful way, but I think it's coming around to it to a certain extent, is is um, what I would call vitality, um, mm. the sweet spot between mind and body, which we know are mm. you know, seamless feedback mechanism. But I think mindset is certainly addressed a lot more. But you know, from the head below, mm. uh, yeah, you're really right. that was largely absent from early positive yeah. psychology. Yeah. And so you mean things just like energy, diet, yeah. um, sleep. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, you, you've done so much work in the ancient wisdom traditions. And when you look at, for example, the eight limb path of Ashtanga yoga, right? In this country, we tend to practice the first few limbs, asana, 
being the most, you know, that basically almost everybody stops at that, the physical mm. movement part of it. But when you look at what was the original intention of that, you know, when this path was created so long ago, and this goes back to your original exploration of purification and pollution, mm -hmm. right? This was about purifying and strengthening the body so that we could sit in the pursuit of mm. the outer limbs, the more esoteric, the more ethereal, for longer windows of time. And that we could dive into that space and keep ourselves there. And, and that it was those outer limbs where the real richness of life existed. Uh, that is beautiful. And that actually allows me to answer the question you asked okay. me just before. <laughs> One thing I found in my interviews in Bhubaneswar is if I would speak to like the local village priest about purity and pollution, they had a very low level understanding. Well, you do this because that's what the scriptures say you do. Um, but when I spoke with Sanskrit scholars or people who are more learned, they would say, well, this is just a means to an end. We do this because it prepares our mind and our body uh, to receive God and to elevate our, and basically, you know, given Hindu notions of karma, um, ultimately a good life is one in which you act in ways that create good karma. A good life is not just one in which you, you know, have pleasures. It's not just one in which you are good to your family members. It's one in which you have a, you, you, you consistently um, act in such a good way uh, that you generate good karma. You're reincarnated on a higher level. So, Hindu notions are certainly about all this that we're doing, even down to the purity and pollution, physical food stuff, is ultimately in the service of your spiritual advancement. And that's a good life, a life on this earth, um, uh, in the, on this polluted, degraded earth, as many cultures have, have thought that we are in the sublunary world, you know, b below the moon where everything's polluted and uh, not like out there among the stars where the gods are that we have a brief time on this earth. And if you live in a good way, um, either you'll be reincarnated at a higher level or you'll escape from reincarnation. But, but so many of these religions have an idea that, um, that everything we do should be aimed towards our, our spiritual advancement and that that is a, that is a good life. Um, the word happiness we think of in America, and this really came up in the early positive psych work, you know, we think of happiness as like, I'm happy, it's a mood, I'm feeling good. Um, but there was an awareness, even in the, those early days, that the word happiness used to mean uh, like happy, circum like for fortunate circumstances, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It didn't mean the pursuit of feeling joyful. It meant the pursuit of positive, a pursuit of a, uh, you know, um, a living in a, living in a, in a good way, with plenty of resources yeah, like and good, happy, good fortune, good fortune. That's yes, yeah, good yeah. fortune. That's right. right. Happiness was more about about good fortune. So yes, I that was sort of always my role in the early positive psychology. I, I was studying moral elevation and some specific moral emotions, but it was also always to be the guy who says, "Now you know the good life also includes living a moral life, a virtuous life, and that morality um, isn't just something that you get to make up. Uh, it, it it's it's something that has to emerge within a community and. Uh, we, we do better in a community that has a sense of moral standards. And, of course, the definition of a community with no moral standards is anomy, anomy, normlessness, as Durkheim put it. Um, so there you go. Is that is that a good answer? That, it's a, that, that works for me. And I'm really curious also, like as you're working through this, um, sharing that, that you, know, you came to a place of atheism pretty early in life, yeah. as you're moving through all this research and, and these experiences and seeing over and over and over, this sense of being part of a larger mm -hmm. spiritual system, mm -hmm. being critical to, in some way, shape, or form, however you define a life well-lived, and, and you, on an individual basis, are saying to yourself, 
I'm not really a part of that. And, and maybe I'm making an assumption there on, on how you would define atheism. How do you square that? Yeah. Well, if happiness comes from between, and I was never able to believe in God. I mean, before my bar mitzvah, I wasn't an atheist. I was, you know, I didn't think about God much, but I was willing to believe that there was one. But by 15, you know, I was always a science kid, and I, you know, just thought it made no sense and the creation of the world and all the different religions. So, so by kind of rationalist uh, means, I became an atheist. And as I've gone on in life, and I've, I think, developed a more nuanced view of religion, that it has many benefits and also some drawbacks, you're right to say that I'm sort of like on the outside looking in. And actually, it's been a great pleasure to me that many people, many um, evangelical Christians and Mormons and Reformed Jews have, have taken the righteous mind and used it in their sermons. They've reached out to me. I've spoken on many radio shows. Um, and and I, I love that. And I'm always treated very respectfully as like an atheist who, you know, is not bashing religion and is a naturalist. And I think one of the lines that got the most applause was when I talked about the God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. Mm. And that's a phrase, it's, I think it's a paraphrase from, I think it's Pascal, who said something like that. And, and I gave a talk at uh, the a committee, or I forget what CCCU, Convention of uh, Christian Colleges and Universities. And I said, you know, you're right. There is a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. And I think it got there from natural selection. You think it got there because God made us. Uh, we can disagree on that and still talk about how are we going to raise kids at a time when this hole feels empty and is really harming a generation. We don't have to agree on the origin of it. We just have to agree that it's there. So I think I've learned a lot from uh, from talking with people in various spiritual traditions. Um, I don't feel any emptiness in my life because I am so deeply engaged in my research. I love what I do. I've got a great job here at New York University. I've got complete job security. I've got a wonderful family. My son's going to be bar mitzvahed in nine days, 10 days. So I'm doing pretty well on the between front. But uh, is that, I guess, is that an answer? Yeah. No, and, and you know, part of it is, is this, you know, the notion is that it, it is on the in-between on multiple levels, I guess. Yeah. But maybe part of the idea here is also that you don't have to check every box there. I think that's right. No, you don't. That's right. Um, there are many paths to flourishing. Uh, someone who had very little connection to love or work is not going to feel satisfied, although people are variable and there may be certain psychological diagnoses or conditions of people who are not not as socially needy. But for most sort of neurotypical, normal uh, people, yeah, they would need lots of, lots of betweens, but not everyone necessarily. Yeah. I brought up the word meaning and meaningfulness. Where do you feel that fits into this idea of human flourishing? So uh, an interesting idea in positive psychology was the difference between um, how happy are you uh, add up all the moments of happiness. And this was, I think, Dan Kahneman's original idea. You look at the amount of happiness below the line. Like you graph out your happiness. And, and the, more, the more happiness you have over the course of your years summed up, the happier your life was. But I believe um, Kahneman um, you know, changed his mind or, or at least added a lot of nuance. Because there's another school which says, no, you don't just want total number of units of happiness, you want a good story. And, and most people, and I, I would ask my students this at UVA all the time, most people, if you show them various plots of a life, some of which clearly have more happy moments by far, but others have a better narrative arc with some real downs, some, mm. even some tragedies, but they end on an up, they end high. Most people would prefer that. So we want, we experience our lives in the moment, 
but we also make sense of them retrospectively and, and looking ahead to the future. It's, it, no, neither one is right or wrong. We, we do this in multiple ways. Uh, one thing that, that I think is now becoming very clear in this, if, if we have time to talk about the coddling of the American mind, yeah. uh, is that if you give your kids too many moments of happiness and not enough struggle or difficulty or setback or failure or exclusion or teasing or anything else, that actually you're changing them in such a way that they will find it harder to find happiness as adults. They'll be more fragile, more anxious, and more depressed. So life should not be an attempt to maximize the units of happiness. It should be an effort, especially early in life, uh, it should be an effort to maximize the degree to which you are strong and smart. Uh, and then we can send you out in the world and you'll make your way and you'll make a difference. Yeah, I, which, which really brings us to um, your most recent work, a lot of your exploration in your most recent book. And a lot of it is rooted in, in this concept of um, fragility and being anti-fragile, safetyism, um, and an approach to sort of, I think, uh, raising maybe the, you know, Gen Z, I guess, is where a lot of the focus is, and a real shift in the way that we're raising kids, at least in the United States. I think mm -hmm. it's different probably in different cultures, and what what the effect of that is now having on a on a society-wide level. Yeah. So let's start, let's make it into a detective story, and let's say, you know, like just as if there was an outbreak of Ebola or AIDS and you'd have a lot of medical detectives saying, what is this? Where did it come from? How does it spread? Well, in the same way, in the psychological realm, um, around 2012, uh, we see a very large increase in rates of depression and anxiety for teenage girls. Uh, it goes up for boys, but it's way up for girls in the, United, in the United States. And it begins right around, depending on the measure, 2011, 2012, 2013, is when you begin seeing this, the graphs going up for girls. And so you might say, well, okay, well, why, why is that? And why is it mostly girls? And you can have all kinds of ideas. Well, maybe it's the financial crisis. Maybe it's, uh, you know, pressures, a bit of a delay, especially in New Zealand. In all cases, we see these graphs going up for girls much more than boys. So it's not anything special about America. It's not the financial crisis because that would affect millennials. They're the ones who are going out in the job market why would the financial crisis mostly affect 10 to 14-year-old girls? Because they're the ones who are hit hardest. You might think, okay, well, it's you know just that they're comfortable talking about it. But no, it's not just that they've changed their diagnostic criteria because uh, if uh, you see the exact same curve in hospital admissions for self-harm. Um, it's up about 60 or 70% for older teenage girls. It's up 190% for preteen girls. They didn't used to cut themselves, and now they do in the United States and Canada and Britain. So the, um, the leading explanation for it is that something really changed about the nature of teen social interaction, namely social media. Uh, in 2009, most American teens and most teens around the world were not online. I mean, they were on the internet, but they weren't, um, they didn't have a Facebook or Instagram account in 2009. And by 2011 or 2012, teens' social life had moved online. Most kids were interacting that way. And it you know, at the time we thought, well, this could be great or it could be terrible. Maybe they'll have super duper social skills. What could be so bad about them being really connected? Connection is usually good. Um, and so we couldn't have predicted this beforehand, I think. But now it's becoming clear that there are certain kinds of social interaction in which young, in which kids become their own brand managers in a sense, we all are our brand managers, but if you make it from five interactions a day to 500 in which you're managing your brand and rating other people's brand, and you're not only 
looking at the overall ratings, you're digging in. Hmm, why did he like this post, but she didn't? Hmm, why, you know, the obsession with the, the prestige and who liked what. So I do think that social media is one of the biggest single um, causes of this mental health crisis. That's one piece of the detective story. But there are others. There was a second shooter. Uh, and there, I think, uh, Greg Lukianoff and I um, believe it's the vast overprotection that descended on American kids and Canadian kids uh, in the 1990s. So just as our crime rate was plunging, we had a, you know, you and I grew up during a terrible crime wave. I mean, it was really dangerous to walk in a lot of cities at night. Kids, you know, even kids could sometimes get mugged. And that doesn't happen anymore. You know, here we are. We're sitting here in Greenwich Village, uh, New York City. Um, you know, I just sent my daughter to the around my nine-year-old daughter out to the store this morning early to go buy groceries. My wife can walk around late at night. You know, it's it, America's been really safe in terms of crime for a long time, but we freaked out about child abduction, uh, and we've stopped giving kids the independence they need to practice adult skills. So, sorry, I'm like lecturing here because this is like what the whole book is about. I've been talking about it so much. But the point is that kids uh, need to struggle and have lots of setbacks in order to develop normal human skills. We learn from experience better than from lectures. And we basically stopped letting kids grow in the 1990s, or I, to be more responsible about it. We greatly cut back on, the, on their experiences of unsupervised time, which included unsupervised failures and conflicts. And that weakened them. And then the same kids, this is Gen Z we're talking about, kids born in 1996 and later, these same kids who were deprived the normal toughening experience of childhood, they got on social media in middle school because that's when it came out, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think it's that one-two punch, overprotection and too early social media. Those are the two main um, causes of the epidemic of anxiety and depression, I think. I can't be sure, but based on what we review in the book, uh, this we think is the most likely explanation. Right. So these two things come together. And now this generation is also starting to enter higher education. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, but they started, no, they entered, they started to enter universities in, 19, in 2014. Right. So we're a couple of years into this now. Now they're starting to enter corporations. They're starting to enter the work world. Right. So, so what happens when you, when you take somebody who's grown up in this way and first they enter higher education and then, um, and, and without having... I guess what you would describe as a fully formed immune system where mm-hmm. they can actually exist yeah. in a world where ideas are exchanged that are maybe profoundly contrary mm-hmm. to what they believe is right. And whereas that same exchange a generation ago would, would have landed in one particular way. Um, it seems to be it's landing in a, in a very different way now. Mm-hmm. That's right. So okay, let's try to work through the case of jokes and humor. It's something I haven't really done in a conversation before. But let's try to work through the case of jokes. So, you know, I think kids, you know, kids like to make jokes, they tease. And when I was a professor at the University of Virginia, the students loved to make jokes. They often loved to make jokes about sex. They were really interested in humor and sex and jokes about sex. Uh, And not that as a professor, you can't really, you know, you can only hint at them. You can, you know, as you're presenting lecture material, there might be some sexual connotation or something that you could maybe hint at and get a big laugh. And, um, and, and so humor used to be a part of social interaction. And of course, it, it's, a, it's a really valuable part of, of human social interaction. Um, and it surely was the case that sometimes people were offended by a joke that a professor told or that a fellow student told. And until 2014, um, you could be offended at a joke and that could be the end of it. Sometimes you'll hear jokes that you think are offensive. And this especially happens if maybe you're at a family gathering and somebody who's from a previous generation, the previous generation, you know, old, you know, old men tell jokes 
that were appropriate 40 years ago, but that would seem inappropriate today. And it was possible to hear a joke from Uncle Charlie and to say, oh, oh my God, Uncle Charlie, you are such a retrograde. You are so behind the times. And that's the end of it. You just leave it at that. But uh, since, at least for Gen Z, the way they were raised on social media in which they, many of them have been raised in a call-out culture in which you get prestige for calling people out for such things. You get social credit for shaming people or pointing out their transgression. So if you look at what a lot of the scandals and conflicts have been, at least in, in universities, um, a lot of them are over somebody told a joke or somebody used sarcasm or somebody, you know, like this is the original one. Um, what was the big famous one? What was her name? The, the woman who tweeted... Uh, I'm, I'm about to land in Africa. Hope I don't get oh, AIDS. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't being racist. She was, you know, it was a joke about her white privilege. It, you know, there was no reason to think that she had negative attitudes towards, towards Africans or African-Americans. But that was, the, it became a global sensation. You know, Justine Sacco was her name. And it was covered in, um, with the book by John Ronson um, on, on reputation. Um, oh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I think it's called. So humor is now so dangerous because... If you offend someone, they have all kinds of ways to call you out, report you, punish you. Uh, and so classroom interactions, normal social interactions are just much more hazardous now. So I think that in a variety of ways, social media has changed the basic connectivity, changed the sources of prestige, changed people's tolerance for feeling offended. I would not want to raise my kids such that if, if it was a little too hot or a little too cold, they couldn't stand it. They had to fix it. Like, somebody's got to do something. It's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. I have to have it be 73 degrees all the time. Like, that would be a terrible thing to do to my kids. And inadvertently, I think we've done that to kids. Um, language has to be within acceptable parameters. If I hear a joke uh, that is, that is uh, offensive, um, I'm not just going to say what a moron and move on. I've got to report that person. Something has to be done. Uh, so I think that diversity means there are going to be a lot of misunderstandings. See, there's no way to create a diverse workplace, diverse school, unless you're bringing people together who have different expectations about language. That has to be what happens. So the more diversity you have, the more times you'll have someone say something that someone else not just disagrees with, but finds offensive. Therefore, the more diversity we have, the more we need to raise the bar on what counts as a reportable offense. Whereas, unfortunately, we've lowered the bar so that our most diverse places, I think, are doomed to eternal conflict. Universities now are, this university life just seems a lot less forgiving, a lot more, what's the word? It used to be really fun to be a professor. It used to be really fun to be on a college campus. There was a sense of trust. There was a sense that we're all exploring ideas together. It was actually good to be provocative. That was actually a thing we said, like, that's a provocative idea. Or he's a very provocative teacher. Like, that was, it used to be a good thing. Um, but I, I, I feel as though it's changed. And a lot of people tell me that it's changed for them, that they're self-censoring. They don't take risks. Um, it's just too easy to be reported. There are too many bureaucratic tools at universities to report us if we offend anyone. Yeah. And I guess that leads to, um, you know, where people go to universities to experience, to fundamentally be provoked, to experience new ideas, new thoughts, interactions with other people, to grow beyond the scope of knowledge and experiences that they have. And I guess if you extend this out and say that the only conversation, the only thoughts that will be offered will be ones that are in, don't challenge you in some mm -hmm. meaningful way, then, then the fundamental idea of what continuing education is mm -hmm. essentially falls apart. But 
But the flip side to that is, aren't there also moments where people do need to be protected? Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are there moments I need to be protected? From physical violence, certainly. Um, from bullying, which is not something offensive, but something, some sort of harassment that goes on day after day and is continual. Um, beyond that, to speak about intellectual life in the language of safety, danger, and protection, I think is counterproductive, especially for the very people, uh, the very people that you might think that you are protecting. Um, so I, I hope you'll enjoy Indulge me here to just read one of the most important quotes uh, in in the book. Hold on a second. So, if you so you know, the, the coddling the American mind is based around three great untruths, three, three really terrible ideas. Uh, they're basically three chapters from the happiness hypothesis. If you were to read them and then do the opposite of what what the ancients advised, the first is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And so, if you think this way, then we need to protect people from things that will harm them. And you might think especially, let's say, African-American students or LGBT students who come to a college campus. And even though, especially at our elite schools, they're generally pretty progressive and anti-racist and anti-homophobic, surely there will be people who have racist or homophobic ideas or who might make a joke. There will be uncomfortable situations. So uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't work on our language. Language does need to evolve. Um, But if we were to say these people, members of these groups, are the most vulnerable, and therefore they need the most protection. So we're going to really make sure that nobody says anything that offends them, because that's the best thing we can do for them. Well, that makes a certain amount of sense, unless you think about it a little more deeply, and think about it a little more psychologically, and understand anti-fragility, understand that everybody needs to learn to deal with the problems in the world so that they're not harmed by, by, by small things. They can pick their battles. And so uh, Van Jones, a progressive activist, he was in the Obama administration, most of your listeners will know his name, uh, is interviewed at the University of Chicago uh, a few years ago. And David Axelrod, Democratic strategist, has him on, they're friends. 
And there had just been an event at the University of Chicago where somebody from the Trump administration was going to speak and the students were protesting. And Axelrod asks Jones, what do you think about this, this you know, stuff about safe spaces? And, and so um, uh, Jones says, it's just absolutely masterful. Um, he says, there's a certain kind of safety, like if it's about sexual harassment or people who are you know, calling you the N-word, there's a certain kind that, that has no place on campus. And if that's what we're talking about, I'm fine with that. Let's try to block that out. He says, but, but then there's this other kind of safety that I really disagree with. It's this idea that if someone says something that offends me, that I'm in danger. And he says, and here's the quote, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. And he talks about how on a college campus is just the best possible place to prepare for a world in which not everybody holds your political views. And, you know, and he says there's a certain kind of progressive activist that comes out of these places that is basically obnoxious, that goes out into the world and doesn't win people over if this person offends people who otherwise could be brought to progressive causes. So, you know, I'm with Van Jones and, and, and many others who've pointed out that, you know, you might think you're protecting people, but you got to really think it through. Sometimes short-term protection is long-term weakening. Mm, yeah, it's really focusing on uh, strength as a goal rather than safety. Exactly. That's right. This is the big challenge. It's really hard to find the truth, and we need to be training college students with skills to find the truth. It's really hard to go out into a world that isn't going to be perfectly safe and caring and loving, and we need to be raising kids who are a little stronger and tougher and able to go out there and thrive nonetheless. Yeah. And it occurs to me also, you know, looping in the idea of call-out culture and try a, a lot of these conversations. You know, let's say we agree that we need to have these conversations. There are certain things you should be protected from. There are certain things which are not appropriate. There are other things which are on the edge, but we need to kind of learn how to become anti-fragile around them. Mm -hmm. The way to do that is not through big social public discourse where you type yeah. something into your device. Oh, God. The way to do that is say, hey, listen, this wasn't cool with me. Like, can we sit down one-to-one -one or in a small group and actually, look, can we talk about this? Let me go you one better. Yes, that's, that's the right approach. Don't do it publicly. Don't do the public shaming. That's a way to get yourself prestige, but it's not going to win someone over. It's going to make you an enemy for life. It's going to make your cause an enemy for life. So I'll, I'll go you one better. Approach the person privately and don't say, this wasn't cool with me. Say, I know you didn't mean anything by this, or I know you had good intentions, but you know when you said this, you, maybe you didn't understand. How do you think it felt for people, et cetera? Et cetera. So start by presuming good intentions, um, do this privately, and the person is likely to be grateful. Uh, um, so the, a skill that I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about, so I teach here at New York University at the Stern School of Business, and it's absolutely vital if we're turning out business future business people, it's absolutely vital that they be able to function effectively in a complex, diverse world where sometimes they're going to have to deal with or make deals with or trade with or make contracts with people who say things they don't like, people who have views they don't like. And business has always been great at that, at getting people to put aside their, their own personal um, you know, religion and morality and just deal with people based on trust. And 
So I'm thinking that one of the most essential skills we need to teach in business schools is uh, is nuanced thinking, pragmatic thinking, uh, and abilities to navigate as a human being in a world that's becoming inhumane because of social media. And so part of what that means is you have to have really thick skin. You have to understand that we all now live in a minefield that things can blow up quickly. So you need to give less offense yourself. You do need to be careful and you need to understand how words can offend, but then you need to take less offense yourself. Anyone who is careful and gives less offense while also taking less offense, that's somebody that every business wants to hire. Whereas a liberal arts graduate who's used to reporting people and, and filing charges whenever someone tells a joke they don't like, that's a person who's not just going to clog up your HR department with complaints. Um, they're likely to bring public shame to your company. Uh, they're not going to be team players. So I think that um, I think that Gen Z is finding it more difficult to cooperate because we've made them morally dependent. We've always told them, if you see something, say something. Don't settle it yourself. Tell an adult. And we were not helping them when we gave them all those protections. We They would have been better off uh, if... You know, of course, we, you know, bullying is different. That goes over multiple days. But if, if the basic idea was, if you're in a conflict, you settle this yourself, and only under rare circumstances do you call in adult help, that's the way that kids learn to be adults. Yeah, and, and to be clear also, um, what you're not saying, in, in, in al- along with that, I completely agree, we're not saying, though, um, if you want to get paid, just be quiet and toe the line. Right. That's right. Exactly. It's not just shut up and swallow your, you know, and ignore your morals. It's what do you want to do? Do you want to actually solve problems or do you want to make a big public stink and and gain prestige yourself? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you can't usually do both. Yeah. And I wonder how much of this is about the prestige and social media and also just the diminishment of the experience of empathy mm. when you remove the screen. You know, yeah. Yeah. and the ability to actually handle real-time conversations that are synchronous rather than asynchronous where yeah. everybody's formulating what they're going to say next. That's right. I've been so focused on the links between social media and mental health outcomes like depression, anxiety, and those clearly show up for the girls. But I've not been looking at the effects on communication ability. And I anecdotally, people tell me that boys have trouble making eye contact now, that Gen Z boys have diminished social skills. I don't have data on this, so I don't want to put it out as a fact, but that's where I need to look next. Um, so the, the girls are on social media a lot, mu- much more than boys. Boys have been on video games a lot, much more than girls. Video games are not associated with depression and anxiety. They don't, they don't seem to ruin boys in that way. But for the boys that spend huge numbers of hours on them, you know, there may be certain benefits to, you know, reaction time. And the military says that some of the kids are better at, you know, computer, operating computer stuff. But it's at least plausible that there's been a diminishment of social skills because we, you know, human beings as they grow need to have, you know, millions of interactions, face-to-face interactions. So, yeah, this is all new stuff. We don't know. We, we, we've been putting kids in a gigantic social experiment for the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, we don't really know what the result is, although so far the initial signs are about problems. I don't know about any super benefits that kids have gotten from spending so much time online. Yeah. I want to start to come full circle um, as well. So I always wrap with the same question, but there's something else that I just want to touch down on before we do that, which is this idea of this whole conversation, especially the latter part of the conversation. We probably have people nodding along saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then we're going to have some people saying, 
well, well, yeah, but there's a pendulum that swings back and forth. Mm-hmm. It's just going to naturally swing back. You're not a believer in that in this no, particular case. No, I don't case. think so. I don't think so. So in the book, in the middle of the book, Greg and I go through six trends right. that are that are all combining, almost like six fuses that all were burning and they all kind of blew up around 2014, 2015. Um, and most of them, I think, are not going to reverse. So one is uh, rising political polarization in the United States. I mean, 100 years from now, maybe things will be better, but in the next five or 10 years, I can't see any path by which, you know, even after Donald Trump is out of office, the polarization preceded him, and I think he made it worse, but it's going to continue on afterwards. Social media has shredded any possibility of us being on the same page. We will never again, and here I do think never again, have a a shared reality to the degree that we had it before the internet. Overall, I love the internet. I'm not saying we should get rid of the internet. The internet's fantastic. But I think social media as a uh, an element of the, it brings out a lot of the worst parts of the internet. So that's not likely to, likely to improve um, anytime soon. We overinvest in our kids. We overparent them. And that's in part because as wealth rises uh, and women get more educated, they have fewer babies. And when you've got lots of adults and a few kids, we overparent them. That's not going to change anytime soon. I don't know. You know, We're never going to go back to a time when most families have three or four kids. So for a lot of reasons, I don't see any pendulum-like mechanisms. I don't see any mechanisms um, that are going to reverse this. The only one, possibly, is that uh, the generation after Gen Z, the kids who are being born now, and my, my, my son is 13, my daughter's nine. My son is Gen Z. It's, we don't know when it ends. Maybe my daughter, born in 2006, uh, 2009. Maybe she won't be. I don't know. Um, it's possible that the little kids now are going to grow up and see all the, the difficulties that Gen Z has had and say, we don't want to be like that. We're not going to all get Instagram accounts at the age of nine. We're not going to, you know, we're going to make fun of, you know, trigger warnings and safe spaces. You know, so that's one hope that, that the kids themselves will see what's happening. And even, you know, Gen Z, what I find is that they're not in denial. Like when I talk with them or I ask after I give a talk, I asked them to sign a vote on whether this diagnosis was correct, even though it's kind of insulting to their generation. And they overwhelmingly say, yes, we're having these problems. So maybe the kids themselves will figure out uh, whether they need to change or figure out what to do differently. But overall, I don't see these social trends as being like pendulums. I think they're, they're kind of one way. Yeah. So if, if, if something's going to change, it will have to be through intention. I, um, it's hard, it's really hard to predict the future, so I yeah. wouldn't say it would have to be, but that is at least one path by which it could change, yes. Yeah. Um, feels like a good place for us to come full circle also. Um, okay, what's this famous question that you end every interview the with? exact same question. So sitting here in this container with a good life project, I've kind of touched on elements of it. Um, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, to live a good life. Um, so I guess I would start with bird got to fly, fish got to swim. And so, and this is, I think, the capabilities approach, uh, um, Martha Nussbaum and uh, a few other philosophers. So fish got to fly, bird got to swim, human got to what? Human got to do something. So if we can answer that, um, that would be one approach to answering your question. Human got to what? I would say human got to develop social networks of love and trust that are the basis for success in our ancestral environment and that are, while not as necessary nowadays for material purposes, still just as necessary for emotional purposes. Human gotta do something productive, something that creates value for others, 
not just be a drain on resources, but actually be, be and be seen as a producer, as someone who does something of value. It doesn't mean you have to work outside the home, but you have to have something that gives you a sense of accomplishment that is recognized by others. And I guess I'd say human gotta be part of a hive, at least sometimes in ways that they can back out of and may not be all consuming because that would be a cult. Um, but human gotta um, be part of something larger than themselves. So actually what I've just done is uh, basically just say happiness comes from between. You got to get the right relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work and yourself and something larger than yourself. I guess that is my answer to any question about flourishing. Beautiful. Thank you. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.